Well, let's get started. We, we're turning quite literally a new page today. We'll turn into chapter 4 in our confession. I've been looking forward to this, not just because we're getting out of the decree of God, but, but to see how it is that God's decree is worked out. And all of our, all the Reformed confessions in one way or another, or, and all the catechisms in one way or another, speak to God's working out of his decree in two primary spheres. One is his creation, and two is his providence, uh, his governance over his creation. So for example, in our Baptist catechism, it's in question 11, how doth God execute his decrees? And the answer, quite simply, is God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So it is not that we're wanting to um, get behind the, the, the confusing or messy business of God's eternal decree and all of its controversy, but rather we want to see how this applies. How does, how does God work these things out where we live, in space and in time? So let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we uh, dive into his word and to the, the summary of that word as we find it in our confession. Our great God and Father, thank you that you are the one who has made the world, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have made us as the special focus of your creation. Who is man? Uh, that you are mindful of him, and yet uh, you are mindful of us. You have, in the person of your Son, clothed yourself with our human flesh, entered into, the Creator came into his creation to seek and to save the lost. I pray, uh, Father, that you will help us by your Spirit's power to understand what your Word teaches us about your creation, and not only what it teaches, but why these doctrines are so foundational and so important to, to our witness, uh, to our lives, and to, to your faithfulness towards us in every way. We thank you in Christ for these things and ask for your help to understand them. Amen. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm persuaded, and I think my persuasion comes directly from the Scriptures. I, I'm persuaded that the doctrine about, about which we're about to consider, this, this doctrine of creation, that all of the ills, the troubles, the difficulties in our culture, in our society, are rooted and grounded in a, a lack of understanding, in fact, a rebellion against the created order, and the creator himself. Most of our current and cultural distress is an immediate consequence of denying or rejecting the doctrines that are set forth here in chapter 4. So this is, not only is it foundational for our faith, but it's foundational for us to diagnose what's wrong. In our children's catechism, and again, my, I'm persuaded that if the, the first three questions, this is so simple that literally even a child can learn it and understand it, but if, we, if, if our culture could grasp and, and hold fast to and actually own these first three questions of the children's catechism, how much sorrow, how much misery, how much difficulty could be avoided? Listen to these questions. Who made you? God made me is the answer. What else did God make? God made all things. Why? Why did God make you and all things? You know the answer? 
for his own glory. Just those three simple and yet profound and foundational truths. Uh, Or maybe it's not truths plural, maybe it's a singular truth. God made all things, and God made them for his own glory. And he made you, in particular, with a purpose. And isn't this precisely the point that Paul makes? If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, before we dive into the creation the doctrine of creation, and particularly as it's expressed in our confession, let's think about the stakes. Because I I think it's impossible for us to overstate the importance of this doctrine, and probably also important for us to overstate the consequences of neglecting, or even worse, rebelling against it. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul Paul begins, I'm not going to read the first half of the chapter, but Paul begins here writing to the church in Rome. I mean, there's a church of Jesus Christ in, of all places, Rome. The seat of pagan power. The seat of, of, of Roman rule and, indeed, oppression. And yet it's there, Paul writes and says that according to the eternal purposes of God, he sent his own Son into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. Then in verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if if we just stopped there, we might be left scratching our heads. Why is God angry? Why is God mad at the world? Well, we don't stop there. For. Uh, We could also render that as because, or for this reason. And Paul repeats that idea using different synonyms. Because, for, for this reason. In light of this, as a consequence of this. For, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Who is them in this statement? Everyone. Every man. If you have eyes to see, ears to hear, nose to smell, ears to hear, you you have the capacity to discern certain things about God. Number one, that he exists. Number two, that he's a good God. Number two, that he's all-powerful. That's number two and then number two, right? No. There are those who can do math. Two kinds of people, right? Those who can do math and three kinds. Three kinds of people. Those who can do math and those who can't, right? Paul goes on. For, again, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in the tangible things of this world, God can be discerned. Not comprehensively, in fact, not even sufficiently in order to be reconciled to him. The man is without excuse. Verse 21, for... Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here's this deadly exchange. Devotion, acknowledgement, Worship of the Creator has been exchanged for devotion and worship 
of the created beings, of created things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what Paul's saying? Here's the foundational error. It's a confusion of the Creator with his creation. Either making the creation above or more significant than the Creator himself, or making the Creator part of the creation. But Paul's not done yet. Just to make sure this point is driven home, he says, for this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since, or again, here's a because for this reason kind of statement, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So Paul, again, my, my persuasion that the ills of our world are immediately connected to a rejection of the doctrine of creation isn't fantasy on my part. Paul comes to the very same conclusion. And repeatedly, he says, because, since, for this reason, in light of this, it's cause and effect. Man has rejected God as creator, as Lord of all, and as an immediate consequence, God, God doesn't cause their sin. God hands them over to their sin. It's, 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 it's kind of like... We as parents sometimes, when our, our children are doing something foolish, and we've repeatedly warned them, and at some point we have to say, all right, go try it. And sometimes when they're little, the consequence is they burn their hand, or they fall down, they fall off the swing set, whatever that is, because they ignored our warning. And for our older children, the consequences are much greater. Because you just left them to their own folly. Well, here, in, in a much more significant way, God says, if you will not submit to me as creator and my created order, then there are consequences of that. And if you repeatedly, willfully neglect these things, I will remove my hand of restraint and allow the just consequences of your sin. You will receive in yourself the due penalty of your error. There could be perhaps no greater 
temporal judgment of God than this. To leave men to their sins. So, the stakes are high. So as we, so we think about that, as we think about this doctrine of creation, may it be that it's not simply a matter of, of our you know, academic or, or theological engagement with the Scriptures, but rather that we see this as, as foundational, as fundamental, not only to our faith and our own comfort in salvation, but also in our witness to the world. And you think about this, in, in Acts chapter six. Uh, 17, when Paul goes to Mars Hill. And Paul goes to, here's this erudite, learned group of men, and I have this mental image of, of them with the white columns behind them, and here they are in their robes and their fancy chairs, and they're up above the rest of the, the rabble of mankind, and these are the learned philosophers of the day. Did you know that Paul doesn't immediately, doesn't immediately, preach Jesus Christ to them. He starts with the doctrine of God. He appeals to them based on creation and says, the God that you're looking for, this unknown God, I know who he is. He's the one who's made all things, and every man is accountable to him. And it's only after having said that that he says the remedy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this doctrine of creation is, is fundamental not only just so that we can you know, win, win some debate with uh, an evolutionist in our workplace or a family member, but so that we can encourage them to submit themselves to the God who made them. And to have in our own minds and to be able to communicate to others the dire consequences if we refuse to do that. So let's think about the... the the doctrine itself, and we have an introductory paragraph. This, this chapter is only three paragraphs, but, oh, so important. Paragraph 1, chapter 4 in our confession, reads this way. In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. I'm going to give an outline, first of all, just a top-level outline for this, this paragraph to help us think in an organized way about it. The first thing that we notice is the actors in creation. God is creator, but he's, he's given to us as triune, even in creation. And I'll elaborate that, on that a little bit. Then secondly, the purpose. We find here a declaration of the purpose of creation. Thirdly, the nature of that creative work. Fourthly, the timing of creation. And lastly, the quality and the maturity of the creation. So thinking through those, those five things, the first thing we notice, in the beginning it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to create. We have a Trinitarian view of creation. That's significant. Um, what it tells us is that we can interpret 
It says something even about our hermeneutics, doesn't it? We can interpret the very first verses of the book of Genesis through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation, the greater and newer revelation that we get, the progressive revelation found in the, new, in the New Covenant. When we see statements in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, we can say on the authority of the New Testament that the us, the plural pronoun there, is Trinitarian. There is a, uh, an agreement, or not an agreement, it's not the right word, there's a declaration within the Godhead. Agreement implies multiple wills. There is only one will in God. So it's not an agreement, but it's a declaration among the Father, Son, and Spirit for creation. And, and, and to see these, this, that heading and the, and the next one are, are connected together because of the very purpose of it. It pleased God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His Notice it doesn't say there. His. Eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Again, if we think through the confession, reading it and thinking about it sideways, it's the phrase that Dr. Renahan has used repeatedly, reading it sideways. In two chapters ago, in the chapter on God and the Holy Trinity, we see a description of God in his triunity. He's three persons, and yet one God, one will. And so here we see this. In the beginning it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His, not their, eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. So what is the purpose of creation? To display this, to manifest, to reveal to the, to the world his eternal power, his wisdom, and his goodness. There was nothing of necessity in God that caused creation. Creation is wholly unnecessary. God was not lacking anything. God was not missing out on something. There was not something in God waiting to be, um, waiting to be fulfilled or waiting to be uh, completed by making the world. God is, 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 exists outside of his creation. He is utterly independent. He has no need of man. He has no need of this world. And yet, to display, to manifest, to reveal his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, he, singular, <laughs> created. And yet he created his three persons. So we have this, this, what might feel to us like tension. Especially in a world that, that uh, is already confused about you know, he and she and they and them. Pronouns are important. They've always been important, not just in our current age. So it is, it is he who has created, and he's done so in the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Listen to Renahan. He, he, I think this is helpful working through the language here to demonstrate to us this, this unity that we have within the Godhead and also acknowledging the three persons of the Godhead. In this case, Renahan says, the three terms, eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, refer specifically to the three persons of the Trinity. The eternal power speaks of the Father. Eternal wisdom refers to the Son, and eternal goodness draws our minds to the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are named in the first clause. The unity of God 
is highlighted by the use of a singular pronoun, his eternal power, and then the persons are again designated by attributes generally associated in the Scripture with those three persons. While we must always emphasize that these truly belong to each person, meaning all these attributes belong to each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, for each person possesses the fullness of the divine being, yet still, Scripture speaks of them in specific ways. In this case, power has special reference to the one who is seated on a throne of majesty, God the Father. Wisdom speaks of the Word, the eternal Logos of God, the one who was in the beginning with God and is God. And goodness suggests the person who always does good for God's people, the one who gives and sustains life, the Holy Spirit. I think it's helpful, even as we think just now, just just occurring to me as I'm reading this, as I'm thinking ahead to the sermon here in just a little while, uh, part of what makes the unpardonable sin unpardonable is a refutation of the goodness of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is given to us as good. Of course, the Father and the Son are good. All goodness is God. God is all goodness. And yet here, in particular, it is the Spirit of God who always does good for God's people. And yet, the Jews, knowing that is true, said Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. That's why it's referred to as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So That's extra. thought in my notes. So it's the purpose of creation. And so we have this, the, the actors in creation, the purpose of creation can't be separated, can they? Because it is, it is God displaying His eternal power and wisdom and goodness in His own three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, something that's helpful to think about, third, thirdly, is the nature of the created Word. Notice the language here. To create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Were the writers of our confession confused? Were they hedging here? Because they said to create or make. Which is it? And what are the differences? What are they trying to communicate by having both of those words? Well, to create implies... You've heard the phrase ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. To create means out of nothing. Well, did God make all things out of nothing? No. Some things he made out of things which previously did not exist, but he called them into being. So, for example, he took the dust of the earth and he made Adam, didn't he? So he, he created all things and he made Adam from the dust of the ground. He formed, we're told, Eve from out of nothing? No, from the rib of Adam. And so we can say God created or made all things. Reminds me of a kind of a corny joke, but it illustrates the point well. At some point there were a group of scientists who were debating with God and and were arguing that, that he made man defective. There were too many faults and defects and that they could do a superior job if given the opportunity to make a new man. And God said, okay, let's see what you've got. And so the scientists gather all their books and all their materials and all their experts and all their instruments and they set out to make man. And they gathered up all this dirt and God said, no, 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 use your own dirt. 
God created or made all things. Now, it's interesting that Dr. Renahan notes that a phrase that existed in, or was found in the Westminster Confession and in the Savoy Declaration is that they had the phrase that he created or made all things out of nothing. And the Baptists removed that phrase. Well, why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose they removed the phrase out of nothing? It's more precise. They weren't disagreeing with their brothers. They weren't, they weren't finding fault with their doctrine, but exactly right. They wanted to be a little bit more precise because they recognized not all things were made out of nothing. Adam wasn't made out of nothing. He was made out of something. Scripture tells us the dust of the ground. Eve was not made out of nothing. God could have certainly done that. He could have paraded the lions and the tigers and the bears and the zebras and the giraffes and everybody in front of Adam, and Adam said, nope, 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 none of these are suitable. And he said, okay, here's Eve. Could have done that. But he did not create Adam or Eve out of nothing. In fact, that's part of Adam's declaration. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And even the name he gives her, Isha, woman, because she came, she came out of man. Now, notice the nature and the scope here. He, he created some things out of nothing. He made other things from material that, he, that now existed. And the extent of that is all things therein, whether visible or invisible. So we have here, not only that he created the beasts of the field, the trees, the plants, the, the fish of the sea, but things that are invisible. He created the spiritual realm. created angels. He created all things, visible and invisible. He created the immaterial part of human beings. We, of course, have two parts. Paul used words like the inner man and the outer man. We have the body. We have the soul. God created the immaterial, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. You know, our souls were not eternal. We didn't exist prior to creation. And God formed a body to go with that soul that already existed. That wasn't the case. God created all things, visible and invisible. Fourthly, the confession here speaks about the timing or the, uh, the chronological aspect of the creation. All things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days. Now, the consensus in, among the Reformers was clear. They meant six ordinary 24-hour days. That's what they confessed, that's what they believed the Scriptures taught. There really was very little uh, controversy or disagreement, certainly not among the Reformed. All the, the Reformed confessions use this same language in the space of six days. This is ordinary 24-hour days. Now, what is not explicitly spelled out here and what is not necessary for us to, to confess is a certain age of the earth. There were those among the, even the signatories on our confession, the Westminster Divines, 
who recognized that this was not an article of faith to say that, the, so for example, some would say, well, there was 2,000 years from creation to the law, 2,000 years under the law, and at the time that they were writing, roughly 1,600 years from the law, or from the, the appearance of Christ until their present time. And so, 5,600 years at that time. And they recognized that seems to be the plain reading, but that is not necessarily an article of faith. Um, it's, it's founded on the reason, but I think it would be hard to, to stretch the Scriptures in any way. Looking through the genealogies, you might gain, you might say the, the, the genealogies are incomplete, which, which would be a true statement. And so that we could not conclusively say, for example, that the earth can be no more than 6,000 years old based on the doctrine of creation. There might be gaps, but there's not a billion years worth of gaps. There's not millions of years worth of gaps. And so our confession needs to be taken in its most plain meaning. Creation was six literal 24-hour days. And the, while the confession does not assert a particular age of the earth, there, nor is there any kind of, of entertaining of some gap theory or um, day-age hypotheses or anything like that. None of those would fit in our confession. There are those, even among the Reformed, who believe that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that there is a time that has elapsed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then in verse 3, I said 1 and 2, I meant 2 and 3. And God said, let there be light. We can't rule that out conclusively, but that's, that's beyond the scope, it's beyond the plain reading of what we find in our confession. So, some might assert that, so, so if someone comes to me and says, I don't really think the the earth is probably more like 10,000 years of age. Okay. That doesn't, I don't, I'm going to sweat that. Someone says it's billions of years old because that's what the archaeologists, the geologists tell us. Well, it's not consistent with the scriptures. We confess that the timing of creation was according to God's decree. This is the working out of his decree, and it was in the space or in the, the period of time, the confinement of six ordinary solar days. Notice the last statement. This is a qualitative statement about creation. All very good. All very good. And of course, that language comes immediately from the pages of Genesis 1 and 2. And particularly Genesis 2. Having formed not only Adam, but Eve also, God declared everything very Good. Renahan, once again, he says, the result of God's creative act is that all things were very good. This is a valuable statement to keep in mind for it avoids some dangerous dualistic tendencies. The scriptures and our confessions assert that the created order, as it came from the hand of God, was inherently good. God himself pronounced it to be so. And this extends to all of his creation. It was all, visible and invisible, very 
good. There was no scar upon it. There was nothing evil present. Man and woman, as created, were very good. They were, in every sense, exactly what God wanted them to be. Sin and evil are not thus part of creation. That's important, isn't it? Sin and evil are not part of creation. There was no bad seed. There is no dualistic battle between good and evil. No light side and dark side. In creation, all is good. So this, this, this is contrary to uh, ancient and, and Eastern thinking, New Age thinking, that says that we have this inherent in creation itself, a dualism. You know, George Lucas famously uh, put this in, in, in fictionalized way, the dark, the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. And, and you have, of course, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and, and these, these characters kind of embodying these kinds of ideas. But we don't find that in a biblical worldview. We don't find that. Because we find what God has done is God created all things very good. Creation itself is good. There is no dualism. There is no dark side that's part of the creation itself. Now, sin has come into the world. Men are fallen, and men do evil things coming out of their sin, but that's not inherent to creation. And sometimes, throughout even church history, we, we have found this sort of dualism lurking that there are things that are maybe we're suspicious about with respect to the human body or human sexuality or even food. And so there's this, the answer then, if you, if you have this sort of latent sense of suspicion that, that the created things are not good, then what do you do? The response is asceticism. It's a strictness of the flesh. Well, because you know having a really good meal enjoying the created world, that's evil, or at least partially not good, so we should abstain. When we think about human relationships, the same kinds of things happen uh, throughout church history, some things uh, with respect to uh, human sexuality. There's been a suspicion that the body, that, the, that God's created design for sexuality isn't good. Well, that's not, we don't get that from the scriptures. This is sort of a creeping in of this, this notion of dualism. That something is, is amiss with creation itself. But God made all things very good. It is man who has corrupted that. It is not creation that's corrupt in and of itself. Or, or creation as God created it was not corrupt. Now, in, in my opinion, this is my opinion, so you take this for what it's worth, this is, I don't, and I don't necessarily think this is the intent of the confession, but I think it is something that we need to consider in this term very good that God uses in the Scriptures. Not only does it speak to the quality of creation, but I think it speaks to the maturity of it. When God says it's very good, but He's also saying it's ready to go. All things were made ready to fulfill their purpose and function. Here's what I mean by that. When God says in Genesis 1 and 2 that things are very good, I'm, I'm persuaded that part of this, can I say this this way, very goodness of creation was that it was ready to function as God designed it to function. 
So, for example, when he made the trees, we weren't waiting 50 years for that tree to mature and bear fruit. When he created the, 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 the lions and the tigers and the bears and the zebras and the beasts of the field, we weren't waiting for them to reach sexual maturity in order to reproduce. They were ready when God made them. The creation was not becoming useful. Plants bore seeds and fruit from the moment of their creation. The, the animals were made ready to reproduce. Adam and Eve were not made as children. They were made as adults. And so part of the very goodness, and this, again, this is my, you can take it for what it's worth. I, th I think this is not the intention of the confession, but I think it's a helpful concept as we think about what does it mean that God made the creation very good. So the stakes are high on, on these doctrines. As we think about the doctrine of creation, we need to remember the actors in creation. We have a triune work of God in the creation of all things, both visible and invisible. The purpose of creation was to display the eternal power, wisdom, and goodness of God. So in a sense, as Paul says, going back to Romans 1, even the divine attributes of God are visible. I think there's a hint here that even his triunity is visible. His power associated with the Father, his wisdom associated with the divine eternal logos, the Word, and his goodness associated with the Spirit of God. And then the nature of that created work. God is, is creating, or he is making, a combination of both, all things. So it's comprehensive, isn't it? There, there's nothing that, that we can experience, nothing that we can see, nothing that we can feel, nothing that we can taste and touch that wasn't made by God. Every, every molecule is made, which is important when we get to the next chapter of the doctrine of providence, because there's nothing that God made that he doesn't also govern. God hasn't made anything and then left it to chance or left it to run on its own. Then we speak of the timing of creation. It's in the space of six days. It is, it is outside the scope of our confession. It's, it's, outside the, it's not consistent with our confession of faith to hold, for example, to an evolu evolutionary view or even a theistic evolutionary view. That God governed and, and steered the courses of evolutionary biology and uh, geomechanics and thermodynamics and all these other processes that I don't understand to create the world. Well, God made, created or made all things himself in the space of six days, which means there was nothing else that has come into being after those six days. And then, lastly, we see the quality of the creation of God. The quality of that. It's very good. And I think embedded in that concept is a maturity in creation as well. But that's not one that uh, you, you have to agree with in order to be confessional. <laughs> Any questions about this? Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. 
Well, e even among the ancient philosophers, there were debates about the nature of creation. Where do things come from? Over what time period? Um, so, because Romans 1 is true, pagans have always looked to the created order and, and tried to make sense of it. And we, we know from natural revelation that the world exists, we know that there is a creator, we know the goodness of that creator, but we don't know, strictly speaking from natural revelation, uh, um, the duration or the scope of that create, creation. Did, did God, was there some sort of being that created matter and, and then that matter has done its own thing through uh, the, the properties and the principles of physics and biology and cosmology and other things and, and come to be as it currently is. Um, I mean, that's to me, that's, that's the, the biggest logical... Uh, there, there are all kinds of problems with the Big Bang Theory, but logically, the, the, the first one is, where did the matter come from? That point of singularity, this, this infinitely dense point of matter that exploded, how did that come into being? Where did it come from? Um, you, you still, nothing, or, or something can't come out of nothing. And so, th there were always those among the philosophers who, who speculated about where did these things come from and over what period of time. So, that's probably in, in the backdrop of their thinking, but, but more more specifically, I think you're simply making the affirmative statement from the scriptures that this is what God said. We affirm that. We think he meant it in actual six days. And they're, in a sense, closing a door on the possibility of other things being made differently or outside of that original creative work of God. Of course, yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly right. I mean, we really can't read this chapter without, a, without having in our mind the doctrine of God's decree from the previous chapter. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, pray. John, do you mind praying for us?